The belief that God became man and dwells among us in Jesus Christ is at the very heart of Orthodox Christian life and worship. Orthodox worship, therefore, involves the whole person, heart, mind, body, and soul. In our services of worship, Christians pray and sing in liturgies that are not of this world. Ancient Faith Radio now presents Singing the Triumphal Hymn with Father John Finley, exploring the Orthodox faith through music and liturgy. Father John is a composer and musician and is with the Missions and Evangelism Department of the Antiochian Orthodox Church. Here's Father John. In the next several podcasts, I would like to take a topical approach to the Divine Liturgy. Uh, The Divine Liturgy is the main uh, worship service in our church. Uh, It's called the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. We actually have uh, several orders of worship. Uh, The Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, 4th century saint, is the main one that we use, but we also have a Divine Liturgy of St. Basil the Great, also a 4th century saint. And uh, predating uh, both of those, the Liturgy of St. James, Brother of the Lord. And... I want to work with the liturgy, uh, studying it as a vehicle for worship, uh, describing its interconnection with the Bible, with uh, basic rites such as sensing and processions, the sign of the cross, and so on. The significance and meaning of uh, church architecture, its fixtures, its art, its vestments, and uh, general shape of the liturgy as a procession into the heavenly realm. The objective is to establish a framework of personal Christian development through the liturgical life of the church. That's the first objective. And that might throw somebody off right there because, you know, we think of uh, Christian development maybe in terms of our individual practice of prayer and uh, reading the Bible and uh, sharing our faith uh, with others, uh, living a a moral life and such. Well, all of those things are good, and we should do all of those things. But to get a sense of Christian development through the liturgical life of the church gives it a whole different uh, perspective or meaning or context. And so let's think about it along those lines. Secondly, a grasp of the inseparable connection between worship and faith. Uh, There's a saying, it's usually rendered in the Latin, lex orandi, lex est credendi. The rule of prayer is the rule of faith, or the rule of praying is the rule of believing. We sometimes say it another way, We pray what we believe, and we believe what we pray. Sometimes uh, somebody might ask, well, what do you believe about baptism? Or what does your church believe about baptism? Actually, the best way to answer that is to sit down and read the text of the baptismal service. And we find in that what we believe. We pray what we believe and then we believe what we pray. 
in other words, it uh, sets some uh, parameters around what we should and what we do believe. Thirdly, to gain an increased understanding of why we worship the way we do. Because I think that as we go through and examine all these various aspects of liturgical worship, we're going to find that there is a meaning that we can ask the question, why are we doing that and what does it mean? How does it inform us? How does it uh, help us to enter into the experience of God in worship in a deeper way? In terms of uh, materials needed, of course we need the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E. We're going to be referring to the Bible often. We need a good English dictionary because we're going to be dealing with words that we don't always uh, know what we mean or may mean something to somebody and something else to someone else. There's a couple of books that I would like to recommend. Uh, both of them by Father Alexander Schmemann. And Father Alexander was for many years the dean of the St. Vladimir Theological Seminary in uh, Crestwood, New York, outside of New York City. And these two books, Liturgy and Life, and the other book, For the Life of the World, Liturgy and Life, and For the Life of the World. You can find these books and order them online through uh, St. Vladimir's uh, Theological Seminary Press. Uh, let me give you the website on that. www.svspress.com svspress.com Go into the uh, bookstore and you'll find Liturgy and Life and For the Life of the World. The course content, just by way of review, we're actually not going to get too much into the text of the Divine Liturgy itself until we've uh, kind of cleared out a lot of other issues. The first lesson for the life of the world, trying to get a perspective on a world view. Secondly, liturgy and education and their connection. Third, liturgy and the Bible and that connection. Fourth, basic rites. And when I say basic rites, I don't mean R-I-G-H-T-S, like the Bill of Rights. I mean R-I-T-E-S, or liturgical acts, and uh, the meaning of those uh, liturgical acts. Fifth, liturgical formulas and text. And we're going to find a lot of these liturgical formulas uh, in the Bible. Sixth, architecture. And we can learn a lot from uh, architecture about what we believe uh, and why we pray the way we do and worship the way we do. Seven, the preparation service. Now, this is the service that the priest and the deacon conduct together before the divine liturgy begins to prepare the bread and the wine to be offered in the divine liturgy and return to us as the body and blood of the Lord. And there's much to be learned in that preparation service also. 
And then finally, we'll get to the shape of the liturgy and uh, its more particular aspects in its first part, which has uh, often been called uh, the Liturgy of the Catechumens or uh, Liturgy of the Word, and then the second part, the uh, Liturgy of the Faithful or uh, the Liturgy of the Body and the Blood. So with that, we'll move into our uh, first lesson, and uh, the title on the first lesson is The Life of the World. The objective of this is to gain an awareness that all of life is sacramental. And when we use this word uh, sacramental, you know, it's a a Latin derivative of sacrament. The biblical word, we don't always, you know, see in in our Bible translations the word translated as uh, sacrament. is translated in the English as mystery. And rightfully so, because the word in the Greek is mysterion, mysterion, the mystery. And just to give you an example of this, this is pretty, pretty interesting. We don't uh, always pay a lot of attention to these things. But if you were to go into St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians and uh, look in the third chapter, uh, let me just read a few verses to you. If you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. He uses uh, the word again in the fifth chapter of Ephesians when he's talking about marriage and he says of marriage this is a great mystery but i speak concerning christ and the church the relationship of husband and wife being that of the relationship of christ and the church and we call marriage a sacrament in our church it is a great mystery what kind of mystery the mystery of the kingdom of God. We're not talking about like a murder mystery or something like that. We're talking about the kingdom of God, not of this world, and admitting that we can't understand everything. We have a a saying that we use sometimes, oh, great mystery. And some people might think, well, that's a cop-out. You know, we got to be able to uh, reason our way through all of these things. And... It's true that God gave us our reason, but there is a higher form of knowledge. There is an intuition that comes from revelation. And we can't always explain the things that we believe, but we know them to be true and they are transformative in our life. So let's begin with asking some questions. Father Alexander starts his book out and when I prepared a course on these materials a number of years ago I asked the question what was Father Schmemann's purpose in writing his book for the life of the world and in the preface he says my only purpose in writing it was to outline to students preparing themselves 
for a discussion of Christian mission, the Christian worldview, that is, the approach to the world and to man's life in it that stems from the liturgical experience of the Orthodox Church. Wow. So, you mean worship has something to do with worldview? When I think of the term worldview, I think of uh, my college class, Worldview Seminar. And so we're supposed to, you know, through this uh, course of study, uh, gain this worldview. Well, what if we can gain a worldview in the liturgical life of the church, in the liturgical worship of the church? What if the way I worship God would mold and transform and change and enlighten my worldview? And what if this has something to do with mission? I work full-time in the Department of Missions and Evangelism of the uh, Antiochian uh, Orthodox Church of North America. The Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese of North America. That's a mouthful, isn't it? (laughs) But... You know, when we think about mission, we usually think about sharing the gospel with others, and especially sharing the gospel with people that haven't uh, heard the gospel before. But I think there is a mission, and that we learn from the divine liturgy, that there is a twofold aspect of mission. And as we go through, we'll, we'll talk about this more. But our first mission, I believe, is to enter into an experience of the kingdom of God, not of this world, to ascend to the throne of God, to enter into the song of the angels and praise God and see the world, if only in a glimpse, if only uh, through a mirror darkly, as St. Paul says, to see the world from heaven's perspective, from God's perspective, and to enter into the light and the life of this kingdom, not of this world, that's uh, expressed from the throne of God, to receive that light and that life. And then the second aspect of the mission, to be sent back into this world as witnesses and communicators of the light in the life which we have received. Some people may think that the way to enter into this first aspect of mission is to enter into the Holy Scriptures, to read, to study, to contemplate the Holy Scriptures. And while we're not suggesting that that we don't do this or that we can't uh, benefit from this because we can. There is something more here that we need to live the kingdom of God, not just read about it and communicate about it. There's a, a sense of, uh, if you could get a distinction between knowledge about something and knowledge of something. We need to enter into a knowledge of God. We need to grasp it, experience it in its revelation, and uh, not just talk about it, 
because there is uh, there's somewhat of a, an abstraction or a, a disconnect in, in terms of the difference between knowledge of something and knowledge about something. So we're gonna we're gonna work on this. Secondly, we might ask the question: What is the definition of secularism? And of course, secularism implies a certain worldview too. It is a, a kind of you know we we use the word all the time you know secular schools, secular university, uh, secular job, uh, secular society. And when it comes right down to it, you know, secular, you know, pertaining to this age, this fallen world. And there's something attached to this word, which I don't think is correct. And that that attachment is to define a place where God is not. God's not in the secular school. God's not in the secular university. Not God's not in... in my job or in the society around us. And although we may be disappointed with um, the uh, institutions and work and society around us and see that people don't acknowledge God, we can't say that God is not there. You know, the Bible teaches us this, that there, there is no place that God is not. And the divine liturgy teaches us this, that God is in all places and fills all things. And so we have to be careful, you know, not to oppose things like secular and sacred and compartmentalize our lives. You know, like Sunday morning, uh, 10 to noon, that's my sacred life, and the rest of my life is my secular life. No. There's no such thing, really. And so our experience of the Divine Liturgy helps us to understand and enter into a perspective not only of God and the kingdom of God, not of this world, but of the world itself as a place where God manifests Himself all around us. And if we only will, we can enter into a communion with God and acknowledge God in all things. So secularism, secular, let's be careful how we use this word and uh, that it doesn't compartmentalize our thinking in a wrong way. I'll give you another perspective here that's uh, kind of a, a false opposition. And when you read Father Alexander's material, he sometimes refers to Manichaeism and we need to know what Manichaeism is. It's, it's a, uh, a false duality. It is a an opposition of uh, good and evil. Well, we know good and evil is opposed, but they are not equal and eternal opposite forces. God is good, and there is no equal, and there is no opposite because God is beyond everything and good is eternal. Evil is not eternal. Let me read you a quote from St. John of Damascus. St. John of Damascus was uh, 
8th century uh, saint who wrote a book called The Fount of Knowledge. And there are three books in this volume on um, philosophy, on heresy, and on the Orthodox faith. And in this section on uh, heresy, he deals with this Manichaeism. Here's what he says. This is kind of rough sledding, but try to hang with me on this. He says, The Manichaeans, uh, also called Aconites, are disciples of Manes the Persian. And while they say that Christ is some sort of apparition or, or ghost, and they, they worship the sun and the moon, they, they pray to stars and powers and demons. So there's all kind of problems here. They introduce two eternally existing principles, the one good and the other evil. And they hold that Christ only apparently came and suffered. They speak impiously of the Old Testament and of the God who spoke in it. And they state that the whole world was not made by God, but only part of it. So, you know, our response to that, you know, uh, to just a casual reading of it might be, well, I certainly don't believe anything that Manny's believed. And uh, the notion of two eternally existing principles, though one good and one evil, is quite prevalent in our age and our culture. And the following questions might help to bring the point home. We might ask, where did evil come from? Where did evil come from? Is evil natural or is evil unnatural? Wow. Is the devil evil by nature? Is the devil evil according to his nature? If there's two eternally existing principles, one good and one evil, are there two gods? God did not create evil. And evil doesn't somehow exist eternally side by side with God who is eternally good. Evil is not natural, meaning by that that evil is not substantial. It doesn't have substance. I heard someone say once that evil has to have an object. That's interesting because good doesn't have to have an object. God is good. God doesn't need an object. The devil, in order to perpetuate evil has to have an object. And what is the devil's object? God, his jealousy of God, his desire to be God, to be as powerful as God. Good is natural because God is good. And since God is good, good is eternal. But evil is not eternal. Evil will pass away. The devil's not even evil by nature. If he were, then we'd have to say that God created evil since the devil's a creature. But the devil is good by nature since God created all things good. But he invented evil by his free will. The devil invented evil by his free will. St. John of Damascus says of the devil, He freely departed from his natural virtue. 
He fell into the darkness of evil and was removed far from God, the only good and giver of life and light. For from him every good has its goodness, and in proportion as one is removed from him in will, not, of course, in place, one becomes evil. And he makes that qualification, and this helps us with the issue of secularism, too. How can we remove ourselves from God? I grew up, you know, saying, you know, as a part of the giving the message of the gospel to other people that man separated from God. Well, what does it mean, separated from God? It can't mean that there is a place where God isn't, but only that I can turn in my will from God and experience a kind of separation and a kind of darkness in the turning of my will. So when we come back to the word secular, we can't say that there's any place really that God isn't, but that there are places where men have turned from God in their will. And in the divine liturgy, what we want to do is turn our will back to God. What is the good news, really? I grew up saying, you know, that we're all sinners, that Jesus came and died on the cross to save us from our sins so that we can go to heaven when we die. And that's all true. But when we look in the scriptures and we see that what John the Baptist preached... And when we see what the Lord himself preached, when they preached the gospel, what's the first word? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So when we enter into the divine liturgy, into this experience of the kingdom of God, not of this world, the first step in accomplishing this mission is to repent. That is to turn. To turn what? to turn our will, to turn our will back to the place where God is and to ascend to his throne and worship him as the Lord of all. And that was Father John Finley with Singing the Triumphal Hymn, Exploring the Orthodox Faith Through Music and Liturgy. If you would like to write Father John, his email is singing at ancientfaith.com. That's singing at ancientfaith.com. This is a listener-supported presentation of Ancient Faith Radio.